If you would, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we come to the end of this first letter that Paul wrote to the church there in Thessalonica as we look at verses 12 through 28 together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, if you'd follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul ends this letter with a prayer of blessing that you see there in verses 23 and 24. And at the heart of this prayer is the theme of the book of 1 Thessalonians. The theme of sanctification in light of Christ's return. That we as the church, as Christ's bride, are to seek to become more and more like Jesus until he returns and we are glorified to be with him. And so you see there in the prayer in verse 23, he says that uh, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There at the last part of that prayer, he says to be kept blameless. This is a familiar idea to us. This is something that he's already spoken of in chapter 4. That it is God's will for his people to be sanctified. Your sanctification, it says there in chapter 4, verse 3. That we are to be blameless, set apart, striving for holiness and love in this life. And so he prays this prayer of blessing. And we see the magnitude and the depths of sanctification on the life of the believer where he prays that they would be sanctified completely. That their whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless. These words spirit, soul, and body throughout Scripture are used to communicate about our thoughts, our affections, our works, that everything about the believer is radically changed when Christ takes hold of them. And they are sanctified in this life, becoming more and more like the Son. And again, the view that we have is there at the end of verse 23, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we spent the past couple of weeks talking about that in detail. This is in view but Paul, in his prayer, wants to emphasize something for us. In our sanctification, and in the end, in our glorification, it is all of God and his grace. He says there, may the God of peace himself 
He is emphasizing that this sanctification, this being kept till the end is all of God's grace. And he emphasizes it in verse 24 when he says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Your salvation if you are in Christ, is sure. You will be kept to the end. God will bring it to completion. If there's a main thrust of this closing portion of the letter, it would be this. Christ will grow his church more and more. Or you might say Christ will sanctify and glorify his church. Christ will keep you to the end, brother and sister. Whether you are asleep, whether you are alive in Christ, you will be with Christ forever. And it is all of God. And so we feel the weight of the letter here in this final prayer in verses 23 and 24. These brothers and sisters in Christ have faced great affliction and persecution because of the gospel. They've dealt with fear about the coming of Christ and grief about their loved ones that have gone before them. They've needed correction in this and in the midst of all of this Paul charges them to live in holiness this is an impossible task for us to do in and of ourselves to live holy lives and so he encourages him them he prays for them he charges them here in this final blessing to consider this that God will do the work that he has set out to do in his people in his church he will do it and so the church in Thessalonica, he says to them, Dear brothers and sisters, if you are in the faith, you have been justified before God. You are eternally in good standing before a holy and righteous God. He is not angry at you. His wrath is not set against you. Christ took that in your place. You are in good standing with Creator God. And you will be sanctified. He will have his way with you. He will make you more and more like the Son. And when the end of your days come, you will be like Christ. And it's all of God. It is sure, he says, God will do it. But there's a tension in the passage that we just read. Because the heart of the passage is the prayer. God will surely do it. But the verses that precede the prayer, verses 12 through 22, have 18 commands in them. God will bring about his will in your life, and yet we see that there is an active role that we take in our sanctification. Sanctification is all of God, but we are to seek to cultivate and to encourage sanctification in our lives. You think about the farmer and his harvest. God is the one who brings the harvest. He's the one that brings the rain and causes the sun to shine and, and puts the, 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 the nutrients in the soil and causes the cells to move in such a way that the plants grow. God brings the harvest. But no self-respecting farmer sits by idly and waits for the plants to grow. No, the farmer wakes up at sunrise and he goes to bed at sunset working each and every day laboring to work and till and cultivate the field he is actively encouraging growth although he is not the one that brings the growth and so as we consider this balance of God is the one who saves God is the one who sanctifies God is the one who will keep us to the end what are we to be doing in the meantime we are to be cultivating this idea of more and more that Paul has been talking about here to the church in 1 Thessalonians 
And so in chapter 4, we dealt with this more on an individual level where he said that we need to grow in our holiness, we need to grow in our love. But here in these closing statements in verses 12 through 22 in particular, Paul has a charge for the church corporately that we as the church are to be sanctified. Individually, we are to be sanctified, but we as a local body of Christ, Calvary Hills Baptist Church, in covenant community with one another, should be seeking to look more and more like Jesus. And so the implication, the application here is for the church this morning. So I want us to answer this question. How do we as a church, Calvary Hills Baptist Church, cultivate and encourage growth, encourage sanctification, encourage more and more of Jesus in our lives? Well, three things that we see here this morning in the passage. Number one, The church that grows more and more like Jesus is the church that supports their pastors. We see this in verses 12 and 13. He talks about those who labor among you or are over you. It is uh, very much agreed upon that Paul has in mind here the pastors, elders, those who oversee the church, those who they, uh, Paul and Silas, had appointed to oversee this church and to shepherd the flock. He has pastors in mind here. And this application might seem strange to us because if you've been walking through 1 Thessalonians with us, nowhere has he mentioned the role of pastor necessarily. Why does he bring up this application? Verses 12 and 13 kind of stand alone awkwardly, if you will. But if you remember in verse 11 last week, he said, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up. This building up, this edification primarily, primarily comes through the teaching and preaching ministry of the pastorate. And I would say all of the application that we see in verses 12 through 22 are about these two things, that we are to encourage one another and build one another up. And so he says to have a particular view of the pastorate in your church, and he does so with two things. He says to respect them and to esteem them. This word respect means to acknowledge the high status of a person. But when we think of the high status, we're not talking about in a worldly sense. When, when, when people of the world think of those who have a, a career of high status and value, they don't have the eternal perspective that we do. The view that we have as, of, as the church for those who pastor us and shepherd us is going to be different than that of the world. It's kind of fun being a pastor when people ask me what I do to say I'm a pastor because you get really weird looks. Uh, people's draws, uh, uh, their, their jaws kind of hit the floor. They don't really know what to say at that point. The world doesn't hold this position in respect or high status, but the church does because we know of the importance of the pastor. The second thing he says there is to esteem them or to view them, he says, very highly, above and beyond, to an extreme degree. And he says to do this in love. This helps us understand what it means to esteem them very highly, that we do it in love. Not just that we respect the position, but we actively love the pastorate and wholeheartedly support them. Now, there's a caveat here, because the pastors that Paul is talking about here are faithful pastors. Pastors who preach and teach and rightly divide the word of God don't just blindly follow after a guy because he says he's a pastor. That's how cults get started. Respect and esteem those who are faithful to the word. Notice what, how he describes them. He says that they work among you because of their work. 
This is that edification of the church. The pastor, the shepherd, the elder is shepherding the flock to edify the flock, to bring about the salvation of souls, to establish Christ's kingdom in this world. He says there that they labor among you. They work hard on your behalf. This reminds us of what Paul said about he and Silas when they came to the church in Thessalonica there in chapter 2 verse 9. Then he said, we worked for you night and day. That the elders in Thessalonica and the elders throughout church history should follow the example of Paul to give them themselves to the flock, not just during office hours, but night and day they are working diligently for the sake of the church. He says there that they are over you to lead, to guide, to shepherd the flock in the Lord, he says. The, the faithful pastor is not pastoring in his own power and skills. He's resting in the spirit of God within him and the word of God before him. He's not pastoring for his own good or his own benefit, but he's pastoring for the sake of the flock. And finally, he says there, the good pastor is the one who admonishes the church. This word admonish means to correct behavior or belief. To correct bad behavior in the church and correct uh, teachings and theology that is not sound. This idea of admonishing for the pastor, or maybe you could consider it church discipline, is not necessarily a fun one. I'm not sure there's a pastor who wakes up in the morning excited about church discipline. In fact, I would say most pastors probably lose sleep over this particular thing, but it's necessary for the sake of the flock. And the faithful pastor even admonishes those who are struggling. And so if you read these two verses at the surface, you might think, well, this is just to the advantage of the pastor. And surely the pastor who is respected and esteemed very highly in the church is going to be healthier and thrive in in ministry. But primarily, Paul has in mind here that this is more advantageous for the church itself. The impact for the church when they respect and esteem those who are laboring among them in the pastoral shepherding role will be blessed and will look more and more like Jesus. We see this, interestingly, in in the final verses there in verse 27, where he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Paul, in his apostolic authority, as he labors among them, tells them to have the letter read. Why? For their sake. For their edification. Notice, too, what it says in verse 25. He says, brothers, pray for us. The practical outworking of the church loving and respecting And esteeming very highly the pastor is just very plainly in that they pray for their pastor. They just, they pray faithfully for the pastors. Notice what he says finally there in light of all this. He says, be at peace among yourself. Peace in the church cultivates sanctification more and more like Jesus. Churches that respect and esteem their pastors will flourish in peace and cultivate sanctification. I wonder if I were to ask you or even just anybody off the street, even a non-believer, who it is that you think in America, in the American church, who are the pastors that are most respected and esteemed? Our minds would probably instantly go to some celebrity pastor, right? Somebody who has books, a podcast with lots of followers, Twitter followers, probably drives a really nice car, lives in a fancy house. His messages, his sermons are heard worldwide and to the glory of God. But I want us to consider this morning a different kind of pastor. I want us to consider the pastor throughout church history who has gone completely unnoticed by the outside world, but is faithful to shepherd the flock according to the word of God. 
men throughout church history who have given their lives to the church and they'll never be read about in history books. Pastors right now on planet earth who are preaching the word of God this very morning in places where persecution is a constant threat to them and they're faithful and will never know their names. Pastors in remote parts of America, rural parts of America, in small towns who will never have a following on Twitter and they only pastor about 30 people in their, in their small town, but they pastor faithfully. They preach the word faithfully. They love the church faithfully. They are not rich, but their needs are always met. There's never a day where they do not sense that they are cared for by the people in the church, and their church loves them. They pray for them. They encourage them. When the pastor says pray, the people pray. When the pastor says read the word, the people read the word. When the pastor says share the gospel, the people share the gospel. And this pastor's sermons might not be very eloquent. He might not be a great speaker, but his people come week in and week out to hear the word of God proclaimed faithfully. There's a temptation in our day to want to be a church that looks to the accolades of men. Dear friend, my prayer for our church as your pastor and as this congregation is that we would simply be faithful to our Savior. That we would be faithful to one another in the bond of peace that we have in Christ. May that be said of us. The second thing that we see here in the passage is that the church grows more and more like Jesus is the church that shows patience to people. We see this in verses 14 through 15. We talked about the commands earlier. There are six commands in just these two verses alone. And the first one you see there for yourself is admonish the idol. Now again, this is that same word we saw about the pastor in verse 12, the correcting of bad behavior or belief. And so admonition primarily comes from the role of the shepherd, but we also see that there is a responsibility we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to admonish one another to look more like Jesus. Um, this word here, idol, can mean unruly or disorderly. If you remember, the church in Thessalonica has a busybody problem. They've got lots of people in the church who are doing a lot of stuff, but they're not doing much. They're just unruly people. And they need to be corrected. Oftentimes, sin problems in the church can only be remedied by stern admonition that brings about repentance. And parents, I think we can relate to this. There's sometimes with your kid where you just want to shake them and say, dude, get it together. Sometimes unruly people need that type of admonition. But notice the next two commands. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. These two are very similar. To encourage is that word we've seen throughout the letter, to comfort. Help means to hold fast to, to not let go of those who are faint-hearted and weak, those who are discouraged and losing heart and broken, maybe because of the circumstances of life, maybe because of sin, that we would come alongside them and comfort them and help them. And so there are seasons in life where our brothers and sisters in Christ need that sharp correction because they are idle but there's also seasons in life where we need to be gentle and comfort and help those who are broken and weak. And in all three of these, the fourth command sums it up by saying this, be patient with them all. That we're patient with the unruly, that we're patient also with the weak, that we need to be a people who are long-suffering. This is so important and needed in the church, that we would be patient with one another. 
We are patient with those who are not growing in Christ at the same pace that we are. One commentator said this, he said, If we don't learn to have this kind of patience with all, we'll end up being angry with most people much of the time. Can you relate to that? I wonder if you've, if you've said this to yourself before. Maybe you've even said it out loud. And I want you to be honest, because my guess is we've all said this at some point. Have you ever said to yourself, man, I am surrounded by stupid people. If everybody was just more like me, this world would be a better place. If everybody was just more like me, this office space would be a better place. If everybody just drove more like me, San Antonio traffic would be perfect. If everybody was just more like me, this church would be a better place. I must confess to you, I've had these very thoughts this very week. What pride and arrogance in me to think that I have arrived in the Christian life. Remember, the church in Thessalonica was doing well in love. They had mastered it. And what did Paul say? Do this more and more. We never arrive in the Christian life. We are always needing patience from someone else. May we be people who are patient with the unruly and the weak alike. Notice how he concludes this by talking about in verse 15, the final two commands. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. If someone harms you, don't seek to harm them back. But he takes it a step further and says, do good to them. Verse 15, the second part. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That in Christ, even those who cause us harm, that we seek to do good to them. And he has in mind here people who aren't even in the flock. Those who hate us and despise us, that in Christ we would seek to do good to them. And this is a hard teaching for some of us. The idea of turning the other cheek, as Jesus said. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Now, we're not calling for ourselves to be pacifist, but we must heed these words from Paul and from Christ and the Proverbs alike tell us to be people like this who turn the other cheek, who feed our enemies when they're hungry. If this is a hard teaching for you, I want you to consider this, that you and I and all of us alike were once enemies against a holy God. And he was patient with us. We were set against him, and yet he was patient with us. How much more so should we seek to comfort and help and be patient with everyone, even those who despise us and do evil against us? Again, I go to the end of the letter to help illustrate this. Verse 26, he says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, we're not to take this literally. So you don't have to go around kissing each other after the service. That's not what he's saying. This is just a common greeting in Paul's day, as it still is in most of the world today. The key here is the word holy. When brothers and sisters in Christ greet one another, it's not just a sign of friendship and love, although that is part of it. It is primarily a greeting of reconciliation and peace. Do you feel that? That when we gather together under the banner of the gospel and fellowship and community together, that we come with baggage and we come with differences of opinion and different personalities, but what brings us together, what reconciles us and gives us peace is the reconciliation we each found at the cross. 
the peace that we have found in Christ. And this is an outworking of the gospel in us. This type of patience we can see in the ministry of Jesus. How patient he was with his disciples. Do you ever sense when you're reading about the disciples that they are some of those stupid guys we talked about earlier? Like, come on guys, get it together. And Jesus is so patient with him, but listen to how he admonishes them. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's probably not going to be something that you're encouraged to say in a leadership book. Tell your followers that they're Satan. He he said that to him. He said to, to Peter, you are a hindrance to me. He said to the disciples, you of little faith, you faithless and twisted generation. He admonished them, but he was patient with them. Since the patience that he showed to those who were broken and weak. Consider the woman at the well. Consider the woman caught in adultery. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He did not promote their sin. He called them to repentance, but he was patient with them. And so when your brother or sister in Christ sins against you, you know what the patient thing to do is? Go to your brother or sister and talk to them about it. What is not patient is to stand in the corner of the church and gossip about what that person did to you. That's not patience. I have seen time and time again in my life and in ministry when brothers and sisters simply go to one another when they have a concern, 90% of the time it resolves itself and that person gains a brother or a sister. Maybe there's a, a, a family that comes to church one Sunday morning and the dad's away on work and the mom And her five kids, they're struggling during the service. The kids are unruly. They're rolling in the floor. What is patient is to maybe go and say, hey, could I sit with you today? Could I help you get the kids to the car? What would not be patient is to wait until you get in the car after church and say to your wife, man, did you see those kids? Those are some bratty kids. Not patience. Maybe we be patient with one another as we look to become more and more like Jesus. Third and finally, The church that grows more and more like Jesus is the church that stands firm through suffering. We see this in verses 16 through 22. We've noted the affliction and the suffering and the persecution that the church in Thessalonica has withstood. And so Paul wants to remind them again of how they are to live in in the midst of suffering. So first he wants to give them a proper perspective of persecution. And he gives it to them in three commands that you see there in verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And all three of these commands are to be done endlessly. He says always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. And so think about these three. When when do we tend to rejoice? We tend to rejoice when things are going really well. When do we tend to pray? We tend to pray when things are going really bad. We treat God like a genie in the bottle when things are going bad. Then we call out to God and come to come and meet our needs. When do we tend to give thanks when the table is full? When we have the eternal perspective that Paul has been talking about in this letter, even in suffering, persecution, and uncertainty, we learn to rejoice and pray and give thanks because we understand that regardless of what we face in this life, we will be kept in Christ to the end. This is not our home. This is just a momentary affliction. God has something far greater for us set in heaven. 
We don't simply have joy when things are going well and pray when things are not and give thanks when our tables are full. When our hope is set in heaven, we learn to be sorrowful but always rejoicing. This life is full of sorrow, but for the believer, we do not grieve in the midst of sorrow. We rejoice because of the hope we have in Christ. Notice, too, how he says we need to be discerning in the midst of suffering and persecution. Not only are we prone to grieve in the midst of suffering, we're also more susceptible to be led astray. This is one of the great tricks of the prosperity gospel preachers. They prey on the vulnerable and the broken. And they say from the TV screen, if you're hurting, if you're broken, if you're poor, give to my ministry financially and God will bless you tenfold. People are prone to fall into this trap. And so he says there, firstly, In verses 19 and 20, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecy. To quench the spirit means that we do not submit to the spirit's conviction and sanctification in every area of our lives. The opposite of this would be the command we see in scripture to be filled with the spirit. We talked about earlier our affections, our thoughts, our attitudes, our work that we learn to give over to and submit to more and more the spirit of God in every area of our life. He says then, do not despise prophecy. Now, there's a whole lot that we could say here, but I simply want to say this. To despise prophecy means to either say that God's word has no value or to replace God's word and its value with something that we deem to be more valuable. When the circumstances of life are not going like we want or we don't have the feelings we want, that we we have that desire that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy to have our ears tickled and we set aside the word of God for something that we deem more valuable. He says, don't let this be of you. He says, rather, test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. There are all sorts of teachings in our day and in the day of the church in Thessalonica that are labeled as Christian and are not. Not everything that is sold at the Christian bookstore is Christian. We need to test everything according to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. I would take it a step further. I would say that not everything in the Christian bookstore is even helpful. There are some things that are clearly outside of orthodoxy that are being sold at Christian bookstores, but there's also things in Christian bookstores that are being sold that undermine the authority of God's Word. We must be good stewards and test everything according to Scripture. Test everything according to the Spirit of God. And he says, hold fast to what is good. Find what is advantageous and agreeable to your sanctification in the gospel and hold on to that. And abstain from the things that are not. And so in their suffering and their persecution and their affliction and their confusion about the end times, The temptation for the church in Thessalonica was to grieve and to be tossed to and fro by false teaching. And Paul reminds them to joyfully stand firm in the hope of the gospel. I was at the batting cages this last week with my son Eli and his baseball team. And as I was sitting there, uh, there was this young man by himself in one of the, the tunnels there at the batting cage. He was probably senior in high school, maybe early in college. He was there by himself, and he had a tee, a a baseball tee in front of him. And you think to yourself, man, tee ball, that's for little kids. But this kid was working by himself on his fundamentals. 
He was focusing on getting the basics right in the easy environment of the cage from the tee. And this kid, I watched him for an hour over and over and over again. His mechanics, everything was perfect. And no joke, every time he hit the ball, it hit the same exact spot in the cage. This kid was dialed in. He was working on the basics. He was working on the essentials in a safe environment so that when the trials came, when the pitcher's throwing 90 at him, his essentials kick into action and allow him to persevere through that season of suffering. I can attest from my own personal experience that a pattern of rejoicing and praying and giving thanks and holding fast to the word and living in holiness in the good times in life not only helps to sustain us in the times of sorrow and sadness and grief and suffering, but it causes us to be filled with an overwhelming sense of joy. Dear friend, there is sorrow in this life. There is loneliness, there is darkness. Some of you come to this place today bearing that burden. And yet, don't miss this, Paul has the audacity to command us to rejoice, pray, and give thanks in all circumstances. To hold fast to the word of God and to live in holiness. And so my encouragement to you in that that is this. Don't wait for suffering to come to figure out your theology of suffering. Don't wait for suffering to come to learn how to pray and rejoice and give thanks and walk in obedience. When he says in all circumstances, dear friend, that means today. Pray today, rejoice today, give thanks today, walk in obedience today. In the good times, in the batting cage, at the tee, so that when the trials of life come, you will see not only are you sustained, but you find joy that comes from a pattern of walking in obedience to Jesus and worshiping him day in and day out of your life. So today, Sing with your families around the dinner table songs, hymns, and praises to God. And see when seasons of trial and suffering come, how those songs of praise sustain you and give you joy. Learn to pray throughout every given day and see how prayer becomes your dear friend in the valleys of life. Don't wait for seasons of sorrow to come to do these things. Live in this light today. And so as we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians, this is just a glorious, simple, beautiful letter. We saw in Acts 17 how the gospel came to them in great affliction and persecution, but we also see how the gospel took hold of them. And this church and these people would never be the same And we see the manifestation of that in their love and their affection and their care for one another and for Paul and Silas and even for those who despise them. They have some confusion about the end times. They need some clarification. They're not perfect. Even in their love, Paul says to keep growing more and more into into Christ's likeness. This is God's will for your life, Thessalonica, your sanctification. And so he closes his letter with this list of commands, but it's all rooted and founded in the hope of verses 23 and 24. If you are in Christ, you will be kept. When Christ returns, we will be with him if we are in the faith. And so 
Again, as the message has been throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, may we be faithful to our Savior and our Lord and our Master until he returns. Let's pray.